Turn in your Bibles tonight to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter number 15. And uh, this is one of my favorite passages in the Word of God. I preached on it quite a few times. It's likely I won't say anything that hasn't already occurred to you tonight, but hopefully I can be an encouragement to you as we preach the Word of God. Matthew chapter number 15. And I'd like to begin reading at verse 21. Matthew chapter 15, verse number 21. The Bible says, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre, and Sidon. Now that's important because those are Gentile nations. And he went into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan, meaning not a Jew, meaning a Gentile woman, came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed for the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the word of God. Lord, may it may it speak to our souls tonight. We know that it's powerful. We know that it's true. We know that it is the medicine we need in our lives and our hearts and our minds. And Lord, we just pray that you'd help us tonight to have open hearts, to have humble hearts, to be willing to receive and hear the truth that you have for us. And may you be magnified by our obedience. Lord, we love you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This has always been a passage that has fascinated uh, I'm, I'm one of those people that is fascinated by the unusual. And I thought it was interesting when they was talking about George that they ran tests and found abnormalities. And I thought they had to run tests to find out that George is abnormal. They could have called me. I could have given them a list. Amen. And uh, I've always found myself to be the type of person that when I come to a strange text, I don't bury it and move past it. And I, I like to dig in and understand. And sort of the uniqueness of passages in the Word of God, it, it, it fascinates me. I guess that part of me that likes a puzzle, not that the Word of God is a puzzle, but I, I like things that aren't just immediately apparent the moment that you look upon them. And This passage is fascinating to me. It is unique in several ways. It's unique because it's a miracle that is performed outside of the land of Israel. Uh, That's an interesting thing in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, He worked primarily there in the coasts of of Israel, but he goes to these Gentile places. uh, Because he's in these cities of Tyre and Sidon, uh, he is ministering to and dealing with a Gentile woman. Now, there's only a few occasions in the gospel records of him dealing with people that are not Jews. Uh, He'll deal with the reason for that here in just a moment. uh, But suffice it to say that his earthly ministry, at least in the performance of it day to day, was directed towards and targeting of the Jewish people. He was the shepherd of the lost sheep of Israel. He, He came, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And uh, he came preaching the the kingdom of heaven. And inasmuch as that is a literal kingdom, and it is a literal kingdom, its throne is going to sit in Jerusalem one day. 
And he is the king of kings, but he's also the king of the Jews. Amen. And so his earthly ministry was was uh, focused upon Israel as a people. And yet there are these moments throughout his earthly ministry uh, when he turned his attention to somebody attention to somebody that's outside of the household of Israel and works in their life. In fact, one of the sort of, uh, you know, bellwether moments, one of the significant moments in our Lord's ministry in John chapter number 12 is when a group of Jews come to G Je- or Greeks come to Jesus seeking him. They come to Philip and they say, we would see Jesus. And, you know, of course, that was prophetically speaking of the fact that at the close of his earthly ministry, that even from other nations, people would come to behold and gaze upon the Messiah. That was a partial fulfillment, by the way, of what will one day be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom when they'll come from all corners of the earth to worship at the feet of the Messiah. And so all this is very, very unique. And this passage is unique, and this woman is unique, and likewise the Lord's response to her is unique. I think we sometimes miss a great wealth of teaching on the topic of prayer because we we fail to see the analog correlation between people interacting with the Lord in his earthly ministry and how you and I interact with the Lord today in prayer. Uh, there's much to be said about prayer, and a lot of people try to make prayer much more complicated than it is. You know what prayer is? Prayer is talking to the Lord. That's what prayer is, talking to God. And I understand the theologians have their seven different aspects of prayer and, you know, adoration and, and you know, uh, gratitude and all these things and supplication and importation. I, I understand all that. I'm not saying there aren't aspects to prayer, but at the end of the day, prayer is talking to the Lord. It's talking to God, communing with Him. You and I, we talk to God through prayer, but during the Lord's earthly ministry, men would talk to Him face to face. And anytime you find people interacting with the Lord Jesus, you find in it some truths that can pertain to our prayer life. And when I see this woman who comes to Jesus, and she's got a need, and that need is not a casual need, that need is not a superficial need, but she has a daughter that's possessed of a devil. And she desires for that daughter to be cleansed and to be delivered from that bondage. And she comes to the Lord and asks Him to work in this powerful way in her life. And the Lord's response is very, very unusual. I know that you and I have sort of an image of how we would think of the Lord responding to a person deeply in need. We imagine him opening those everlasting arms and wrapping them in it and comforting them and immediately granting to them whatever their need is and and showing his magnanimous nature and his benevolence and his kindness and compassion and mercy and grace. And yet when I come to this passage, that's not how the Lord's behaving. Now, on its face, that seems strange. But when you think about this passage in the context of prayer, all of a sudden it doesn't seem all that unfamiliar. Because I don't know what your prayer life is like, but there's times that the Lord answers immediately. Then there's times, man, that it seems like it takes a little more time and work. I want to preach to you tonight on this thought, hard prayer. Sometimes prayer is an easy thing. I like it when it's easy. I like most things when they're easier as opposed to being difficult. I think most people do. And when you study through the ministry of the Lord Jesus, man, sometimes we see that men would come to him or sometimes he would even go to them and their deepest needs would be met immediately. I think about the fellow by the pool of Bethesda, John chapter number five, the Lord comes to him. He didn't even go seeking the Lord. And the Lord comes to him and says, wilt thou be made whole? 
And this man answers the Lord and says, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I'm coming, another steppeth down before me. And I like how the Lord answers back and says, Well, you don't have, you don't have to get that. You've got me here. You don't need a stirring when you have the Savior. Uh, you don't need an angel when you have the Almighty. And so he says, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And there in a moment, this man that had for 38 years laid bedfast, infirmed by this pool of Bethesda, just in a few moments, I mean, almost in, in less time than it takes to even describe it, this man's life is forever changed. <clears throat> I like moments like that. I, I thought about a man in Mark chapter number 10, a blind man that, that Jesus spoke to him and, and, and he asked him, he said this, what wilt thou that I should do unto thee? Well, I wish I'd get God to say that to me, don't you? What do you want? <laughs> and I don't think it was a blank check, uh, mind you, but, but he's asking him, what do you want? What do you desire? And the blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. I like those immediately answers, don't you? I don't like to wait on stuff, man. I like those immediate Answers. I, I think also about a man in Mark chapter number three who's in the synagogue. And, uh, this man, he, he, the Bible tells us in verse one of that chapter, he had a withered hand. And the Lord Jesus in verse three, he said to the man, looked at him, he said, stand forth. And in verse five, the Bible says this, he saith unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched out and his hand was restored whole as the, uh, I mean, you almost couldn't get an easier, more simple remedy for this man's affliction. He didn't even have to do anything other than just take his hand and stick it out there. It's like the children of Israel in the Old Testament when they just had to look and live at the serpent. I mean, uh, you can try to make that a work if you want to make it a work, but it don't take no work to look at some, Sometimes it takes work to look away from something. Somebody say amen to that, but it don't take no work to look at something. And this man, in just stretching forth his hand, I mean, he's not laboring, he's not earning, it's just so simple. And I think about my prayer life, and man, there's times that the Lord looks at my problem and says, Toby, wilt thou be made whole? All throughout Scripture, the Lord in beckoning me and commanding me to come to him over and over again, he's implicitly saying, what wilt thou that I should do unto thee? And then there's times that before I even realize that he's going to fix my problem. He just simply says, stretch forth thine hand. And all of a sudden, I don't even know when it happened, but God solved a problem that I didn't even see was there. Man, sometimes prayer is easy. But at other times, at other times, prayer sort of feels like it must have felt for this Canaanite woman. Man, sometimes prayer is easy, but i, I got to be honest with you, man. Sometimes prayer's hard. Sometimes we go to God and we seek his face and we seek his heart and his mind and we seek his help. And there's times that he just immediately grants it in a meaningful, uh, evident way. But then there's other times that we have to labor in prayer. There's a reason Christ told a parable in Luke 18 to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Because sometimes prayer is hard. When I look at this woman and her experience, I begin to learn some things about those Moments of hard prayer in our life. I want you to notice just a few simple thoughts and we'll be done. Look with me at verse number 22. And it's interesting because this passage really divides itself sort of into four sections. There's like a back and forth between uh, this woman 
and the response or lack thereof of the Lord Jesus. Notice verse 22. The Bible says this, Behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a death. Now here, later in the message, we'll get to everything that's wrong with what she said. But can I say a word very quickly about what's right about what she said? Hey, she came to the right person. You couldn't come to a better person to fix your problem. I mean, she comes to the best person walking the face of the earth to deliver her daughter. She comes, and I think she had the right attitude. We'll talk about her approach in a moment, but I think she had the right attitude. She didn't come boastfully. She didn't come believing she deserved it. I mean, she comes in humility. We see that later on as her response is adjusted. But, I mean, she came with the right attitude, and she came asking the right thing. Wonder how much time we waste praying around things that we desperately need. Wonder how often, because we think we're being super spiritual, we pray every single corner of a problem we have and never go for the jugular of what we're struggling with. This woman, man, she didn't waste no time. She just came and said, hey, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Have mercy on me. It's implicit in there. Deliver her. Cleanse her of that thing. There's, I mean, I would say this. I, there ain't much to criticize in that prayer. It seems like she does everything right. But verse 23 says this, but he answered her not a word. Notice with me the mystery of his silence. Don't you know she wondered why he wouldn't answer? Don't you know she probably thought to herself, worse people than me have gotten help from him? Don't you think he probably thought worse cases than my daughter have been healed by him? She probably had heard about the boy that's brought to Jesus that has the devil within him that had been cast into the fire and into the water. And she probably thought, my daughter's not in that bad of shape. She probably came to him and thought, you know, I, I think I approached in the right way. I think I did everything right. I think my heart is in the right place. I think my words were right. I think my attitude was right. And yet still he did not answer. Can I tell you this? There's going to be times you're going to do everything right and he still won't answer. I, I cannot always give you an immediate answer and, and description of why. We'll see in a moment that, that there's always a reason, but, but there's going to be times that you do everything right and still you're met with silence. The Bible says he answered her not a word, and sometimes we pray and we just don't get an answer. We ask God, we beg God, we're persistent, we tick all the boxes. You know, we all have boxes in our mind. <laughs> Of, of what prayer looks like. You know, well, I gotta pray in faith. You know, I gotta pray in Jesus' name. I gotta, I gotta pray unselfishly. I gotta desire things that would glorify the Lord. By the way, I don't think he would have answered later on if it hadn't glorified him. And I'd say this, he probably got as much or more glory out of what he did for this woman than a lot of things he's done for me. I mean, preacher's been preaching out of this passage ever since the Holy Ghost put it down in inspired, uh, words. And, and, and so, all the boxes are checked. Everything seems to be correct, and yet still he does not answer. We have, and I think a lot of well-meaning people that happen to have had book deals have tried to sort of... <laughs> have tried to sort of boil prayer down into this formulaic activity. And, and it's, it's not without pressing. I mean, the Lord taught his disciples how to pray. We can be taught to pray in a biblical manner. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, that there is no right way to pray and wrong way to pray, but I am saying 
Prayer is not merely about doing it the right way and unlocking some sort of potential. It's about your relationship with the Lord and your interaction with Him. I see the mystery of His silence, and you may be hurting right now because you're thinking, I've been praying, I've been asking for God to do this, and it's like there's a mile of concrete between me and heaven. I can't get no answer from God. I can't get no direction from God. And yet, I see not only the mystery of His silence, I want you to notice the meaningfulness of His silence. Boy, we're we're really glass half full people. I mean, we really are. At our very core, maybe it's part of the human fallen condition, but... We're really glass half full. We look at it and say, how hard that must have been that he didn't answer a word. But can I say this? There could have been some words he said that would have been worse than silence. He could have said, sorry, I cannot help you. He could have said, I'm I'm unwilling to. He could have said this and he would have been right saying it. You're not worthy of my help. He could have said that. Just like he could have said that to you or to me. Hey, there's worse things than silence. I've learned that as a husband. <laughs> Sometimes you think the silence is bad, but you might not want her to break the silence. Amen. She might break some more things with it. And and sometimes there's worse things than silence. I, I I see the meaning of his silence, and it suggests this. He wasn't done with her. He could have just simply said, no, now leave. And in fact, the disciples asked that in a moment. But instead, he just merely is silent. I'm not saying silence is an answer, but I'm saying it does inform some things. You remember the Bible tells us about Paul going to the Lord over that thorn in the flesh, and and he said that thrice he had asked God to take that thing away. Now, I don't think three times that God had said no, Paul, and Paul just stubbornly, pig-headedly refused to answer. I think God was developing Paul through that process. And I think that thing went on Paul's prayer list and off Paul's prayer list on three separate times. And I think probably when it came off of his prayer list, it was with good motives, with an endeavor to spiritual maturity. He probably came to a place where he said, you know, if God's not going to do this, I'm not going to bug God about it. I'm content. I'm okay. I'm all right. And yet still that nagging thorn came back again and again and again. So he would come back to God with his heart heavy, with his uh, head bowed low, and he would pray about that thing again. And on uh, two separate occasions, when he would beg God, when he would plead with God, God just met him with silence. But God didn't tell him no, not till the third time. Why is that? Well, evidently, God is not afraid to tell you no when it's in your interest. So if he's silent, there must be a meaning to it. I can't tell you what the meaning is, but I can tell you there is a meaning. Or he would tell you no. I see the meaning of his silence, but notice number two tonight, the meaning of his patience. Now, in verse number 23, I want you to see at the end of it the the pleading request. Of the disciples. His disciples came and besought him saying. Send her away. For she crieth after us. This is a distinctly human response. To the importunity of this woman. And and I think it's precious. That the Lord included this. Because to be frank. He did not have to. It's amazing to me. If you just look at the flow. Of the narrative of the word of God. And pay attention to what doesn't have to be there. And then ask yourself. So why is it there? I mean, it very simply could have said he answered her not a word, but he answered his disciples and said, I'm not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And on the face of it, it wouldn't appear as though we had lost much of anything in a narrative sense. We didn't have to know about the disciples request to turn her away. 
But the Bible wants us to know that they wanted her to turn around and leave. And why is that? Because they, as is often the case, are showing sort of a carnal perspective of the matter of importunity, of seeking God's help persistently. And here's what they want, man. They, they say, if you ain't going to help her, won't you just send her away? Can I tell you, in many ways they embody the one-dimensional attitude that we have cultivated towards prayer. I understand, man. I, I guess I'm thankful for, for John R. Rice t- teaching us that prayer is asking and receiving. I wish he'd been right about the Bible, too. But, uh, you know, I, I, I guess it's good that he said prayer is asking and receiving. But can I tell you this? Prayer, prayer has more to it than just asking and receiving. And I'm not saying it involves some kind of great feat or talent. I'm just saying sometimes God's doing more than just getting you to ask so that he can give. He's doing more than just a simple transactional exchange of, of goods for gratefulness. God is doing more in our life than merely helping us fulfill our wish list. And we come to this passage, we see the human response. What good is it for her to be here if you're not going to help her? Can I say in our life, sometimes we have that attitude about prayer. Well, why pray if God's not going to answer? Why don't you ask this question? Why is God not answering? And what does that teach me about prayer? I see their pleading request, but I see his purposed refusal. He reveals something to them, and undoubtedly within her hearing, I think that's the case because she changes how she was speaking to him. I think she probably heard it. In verse 24, we see his purposed refusal, but he answered and said, I am not sent, but under the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, that's an interesting reply. Is that to suggest that the Lord never interacted with Gentiles? If that's true, it's not in keeping with the rest of his earthly ministry. There were times, certainly, that he interacted with Gentiles in his earthly ministry. Some people have tried to 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 claim that what he was saying is it's beneath me even to speak to her. But I don't think that's what the Lord's saying. They're saying, if you're not going to help her, just send her away. And his reply is, I'm going to help her. But she's going to have to learn some things about me before I can. She's going to have to approach me in a different way. I don't want to get ahead of my message. But even in his unwillingness to turn her away, he is declaring to her that there is hope for her cause. Man, I'm glad. Hey, listen, I'm glad he don't turn us away. I, and, and, and there's times that, that he might do that in mercy, not in the sense of turning us away from a relationship with him. But he very easily could have said, I'm sorry, lady, there's no hope for you. You're wasting your time. It's amazing how little regard people have for time. But can I tell you something? God, even though he can create more of it, he has great regard for time. He wasn't going to waste any of his time. Three and a half years, he'd walk this earth. Sounds like a lot, but whew, older I get, it ain't much at all. And especially if you are an eternal God, that would seem like a small slice of time to work. He was not wasting his time, but rather he was developing her. And in this refusal to send her away, in his unwillingness to say, no, I'm sorry, there's no hope for you. He's implicitly saying there is hope. There'll be times God will settle your heart about a matter and will tell you, no, this is not going to happen. Sometimes he explains himself. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes we wouldn't expect, we wouldn't receive the explanation. Sometimes we will receive it, but not until we experience some things first. But God is not afraid of telling us no. 
So if he's not telling us no, it's not necessarily a de facto agreement that he's going to do whatever we're asking, but it does suggest that he's not done with us in the matter of that prayer. I, I, I would say the meaning of his silence, but then I see the meaning of his patience. Then look down with me at verse 25. This is probably the most most mystifying of all the interactions. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Boy, I've said that a time or two. Lord, help me. I don't know that I've ever looked at God and said, Thou son of David. But I've sure looked at him and said, Lord, help me. <clears throat> but he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. I would say this, we see here the meaning of his indifference. Now, I'm careful how I say that word indifference, because we understand that fundamentally he's not indifferent to her. (laughs) But I tell you this, if somebody talked to you that way, you'd sure think they were being indifferent. I mean, she could have very easily said, what are you talking about? Children, bread, dogs, my daughter's lying at home dying. I need help. She understood what he was saying because she answers back with great wisdom in verse 27. The dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Notice two thoughts here. Notice, number one, her different approach. She realizes when she overhears in verse 24, I'm not sent but under the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The title son of David was a messianic title. Why did the son or descendant of David matter? Because the Messiah would be of the household and lineage of David. She was saying, Messiah, help me. His answer was, I'm not your Messiah. Right? Now, he's the Messiah of the world. We understand that. We understand that his kingdom is not going to stop at the borders of Israel. <clears throat> but she's coming and asking for his help in the, in the vein of his responsibilities as Messiah. His reply is, my responsibilities as a Messiah don't include you. You're a Gentile. And so he calls her a dog in verse 26, which, again, is not merely a derogatory term, but that's how the Jewish mind thought of the Gentile world. As though they were uncivilized, uncouth, outside, unclean. And his reply, let me just say it this way. She goes to him and she says, Lord, help me. Now she's talking language he can respond to. And I I would just say this in his answer. Before I even talk about what he said, can I just say it did get an answer? It's easy to look at what he said. And I've had people that, I I mean, I've known people that, that, how do I say this? I've known people that can, they make you feel like you've been put through a meat grinder just talking to you. Have you ever met people like that? I've met people before that, man, their compliments cut like knives. And I've met people before that I've thought, I'd have been better off if you hadn't said what you said. (laughs) Sometimes not even them meaning anything by it. And certainly it's easy to look at that and say, wow, boy, that's a, that's a fierce answer he gave her. Yes, we'll, we'll deconstruct a moment, but can I just say it did get an answer before she was met with silence. And now she gets an answer, and his answer, it's it, it's not meant it's not meant to to discourage, it's meant to inform, and enlighten. He says it's not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. In other words, I have a certain responsibility as Messiah. 
You came to me as Messiah. You have no claim on me as Messiah. If you want help, you're going to have to have something other than just that sort of relationship because you don't fulfill that criteria. You're going to have to come to me in a different way. Here's what we could say. Through the perceived indifference, he is actually calling her to a, to a reassessment of her relationship with and approach unto him. And there's sometimes we look at it and we say, why don't God care? God does care. Casting all our care upon him, for he careth for us. He does care. He cares about everything that you care about. So if it looks like he don't care, you've got to ask yourself, what is it that he cares about more than what I care about in this moment? If he's willing, I mean, he understands he's going to heal this woman's daughter. But he also understands that he could heal this woman, woman's daughter. But if he does not give her this word of faith for her to respond to that produces in her a personal relationship with God, then sooner or later her daughter's going to die and she'll be none the better for it either way. And so the Lord is not saying, I don't care about what you care about. He's saying, I care about something more that you don't care about yet. And I'm trying to get you to see that there's something bigger going on than just what you're immediately need is there's a lot of time we spend on a different page than God and he's always on the right page there's a lot of time we spend focusing on rectifying and fixing things and missing the deeper point of what God's trying to develop in us his answer was not meant to hurt her the answer was meant to help her. It was not meant to cut her. It was meant to call her. It was meant to draw her and develop her into a right relationship with God. Did it do that? Well, notice we see not only the meaning of his silence and his patience and his indifference, but finally, and I'm done tonight, notice the meaning of his response. So verse 27, 28 has two parts to it. It says this, she said, truth, Lord, Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Boy, I guess that made up for that comment about being a dog earlier. Great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. Her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Seems as though there's an about face in his disposition towards her. But in fact, that's not true. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was not acting in a way disconsonant with his mercy and his compassion. Rather, she changed her attitude. And it elicited from him a different response. You know, there's times in the Bible that it talks about the Lord repenting. We understand, and in fact, the Bible says explicitly that the Lord is not a man that he should repent. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is that God in his immutable nature has given certain guidelines as to his response to certain events that happen. And when mankind is going a certain direction, God will respond to that in a certain way. And if mankind wants God to respond differently than that, it's not going to happen through God just changing his mind. Man's going to have to change his behavior. And when man changes his approach to God, then God in his immutable nature can change his response to them. And that's what we see happening here. He didn't all of a sudden soften towards her. He loved this woman before the beginning of time. But she changed her reply. And what was her reply? Well, notice, number one, the reply of her faith. She said, truth, Lord, I like that. He's called her a dog. 
He should call her a dog. Let me tell you something. You and I call a woman a dog. We ain't going to get this kind of answer. He just called her a dog. And she says, right. Right. Have you ever been struck when when somebody will say something we, we've had this happen here lately as as conspiracy theories become tomorrow's headlines and people are coming to a realization about different things and and somebody will, will spill out some some large grand realization that they've come to and the only answer you can say is right it's what we've been saying the whole time you know and uh, right we've been getting at that you know i mean you have people say things like you know i'm starting to think that all politicians are crooked right yeah, glad you, glad you showed up. We've had a seat for you for a while. And, uh, the Lord says all this. It's not meat to take the children's bread, meaning I am the bread of life sent to the household of Israel. And it's not appropriate that I should spend my time as the Messiah ministering in other lands. That as Messiah is not what I am sent here to do. I'm not sent to you Gentile dogs. She says, right. You're right. I came to you. I called you the son of David. I had no right to do that. I have no claim on you in that way. I have no relationship with you as such. But now, Lord, that's not what I'm asking. I'm saying as Lord, as God, as Savior, as Almighty. I'm not saying it because I'm your countryman, because I'm not. I'm saying it because I'm your creation. And I'm just asking you as my God to do what I cannot do. Truth, Lord, yet the dogs, you're right, that's what I am. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Not because they were placed deliberately there, but because the same God that left behind handfuls on purpose allows the crumb to fall from the table that the dog might be fed. Whenever God left behind or commanded for the the handfuls of purpose to be left behind in the book of Ruth, it was an act of grace. Grace given that which is not deserved. Now she comes and she does not implore him based upon his credentials as Messiah, but she casts herself on his grace. And he says, now you're understanding. I see the reply of her faith. She believes that he's a gracious Lord and that he'll give it. Notice the response to her faith. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, a woman, great is thy faith. Now this is important. He didn't say great is thy prayer. He said, great is thy faith. He didn't say, great is thy worship. She worshipped him earlier, but he didn't say, great is thy worship. He said, great is thy faith. Now, what is faith? Faith is taking God at his word. What faith is. God says something, we accept it and believe it and know it to be true. And that is a transformative reality in the life of the believer. That's what makes a Bible believer different from an unregenerate pagan. Is that God said some things about us and we believed it to be true. And here's what was happening. As she approached the Lord, she had a great need, but she didn't have great faith. She didn't know enough about him to have faith in him. She had heard that he was the Messiah, but that was a distant, unrelated, impersonal perspective of it. But now she has gazed upon him. Now she has heard his words. Now she has seen the glow of his countenance. And now she can place a personal faith in him. And he can respond to that faith. In other words, sometimes prayer is hard because prayer is more than just God transactionally giving us the things we require or request. 
God brought this woman, and by the way, he says this, be it unto thee, even as thou will, and her daughter was made whole from that very hour. This woman came to a saving knowledge of God, and it came because he didn't answer immediately. In other words, he was developing her concept of who God was, but that didn't happen through easy prayer. That happened through hard prayer. In your walk with the Lord, God can only grow you sometimes through hard prayer. God can only develop you sometimes through hard prayer. And there's some things that you can't learn when prayer is easy. Listen, faith is a muscle. It has to be strengthened. And it's not something that happens in a moment. It's something that God has to cultivate in us. And I'm just encouraging you in this. Unless God said no, don't give up. Pray on through. Pray on through. Not because you're going to get it. I don't know if you'll get what you're asking for or not. But because unless God said no, he's not done with your prayer life in that matter. He's not done with that that issue in your prayer life. And you don't want to miss the deeper thing that God's doing. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I, I invite you to come. And it could be that you need to restart some matters in your life that you've been praying about. It could be that there's a matter you've been praying about and you've grown weary in it. You're ready to faint. Christ told parables that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Uh, God saying no is a good enough reason to quit praying about a matter. But just us getting discouraged is not a good enough reason to quit praying about a matter. Or maybe there's something in your life that you've not had the boldness and the faith to pray about. Won't you find a place this altar and begin trusting the Lord and asking him to work in that matter. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.